Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. I'm excited to continue a mini-series of sorts for the podcast. This one is focused on the exciting quail research occurring in some of the finest universities across the country. A few episodes back, we had Dwayne Elmore from Oklahoma State University, and more recently, Mark McConnell from Mississippi State University um, to talk about different quail-oriented research um, that they're doing along with their students. On today's episode, we're returning to school for a discussion with another quail research biologist and a valued collaborative partner with Quail Forever. From the University of Georgia, can I get a go Bulldogs? Go dogs. All right. Uh, we've got Dr. James Martin joining us today, along with uh, uh, Quail Forever Program Manager, Andy Edwards, and our very own doctor, once again, Jess McGuire, riding shotgun. Uh, thank you all for making time to, to go back to school with us today. Appreciate you joining the podcast. We'll, we'll start, um, even though it's just been a couple episodes since Jess and Andy were on, we know our listeners come, um, you know, for whatever reason, different episodes pique people's interest, so they don't necessarily always listen in order. So let's start with um, Andy. Go ahead and give a short intro. Um, yeah, on, sure. Your background. Yeah, glad to be here, Bob. Um, Andy Edwards, program manager for Quail Forever, and uh, longtime PFQF employee. Started back in 03 here with the organization with Pheasants Forever up in Indiana. And moved home to the south, live in my hometown of Pulaski, Tennessee, and uh, now cover the, the program manager position and role with, with the organization, and glad to be here. Well, thank you uh, for making time. So we got got Tennessee covered, then we're going to jump. Uh, Jess, you're, you're living in Florida or in Georgia? Yeah, so I live in, I live in uh, Dawson, Georgia, just north of Albany, so well, capital. Yep. I'm the Work and Lands for Wildlife Bob White coordinator, and I am involved in that initiative and that partnership in about 26 states and have biologists in about a dozen. So we're really rolling and a little bit all over the place. And before joining our organization, you were a biologist for the state of Georgia, correct? That's right. I was the um, I was program manager for the Bob White Quail Initiative and the Private Lands Program, and before that, I spent a little bit of time as a red cockaded woodpecker biologist, climbing trees with chainsaws. Not much better than that. And then before that, I was actually a private lands biologist, a farm bill biologist. So, kind of did it all. Very cool. Well, you've already heard his voice. He's our he's our featured guest. He is taking on uh, my Michigan Wolverines in the bowl. Uh, you... <laughs> and this, 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 this just this got will... real real quick. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh -oh. This will this will air after after that game takes place. So mm. we we can we can uh... already we can go ahead and assume that Georgia won, and we can just. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
be careful. Last time I uh, fought for my team on this podcast, it didn't fare so well. So uh, I still stand by my support, though. That was a hockey call, didn't wasn't it? Yeah, Why'd you I, cheer for Stanley Bruins. Cup? I still stand by it. Go Bruins. But I think the dogs have a much better chance. So. All right. We won't let it devolve into a, a NCAA football battle. But um, Dr. James Martin, thank you very much for, for making time to join the podcast today. Tell us, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about um, your background, where you grew up, uh, where you went to school, and what you do for a living. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Um, I'm originally from North Carolina. I grew up working on a tobacco farm back home in North Carolina and spent uh, all the way up until I was 22 years old there and started grad school here at Georgia in 2003. Uh, spent some time down in Florida working with Tall Timbers for my PhD program. I did almost my field work in Central Florida for my PhD, so I've been all over the Southeast. And after I finished finished my PhD in 2010. I went to Mississippi State for a postdoc and worked with Wes Berger there hmm. and uh, was transitioned to faculty at Mississippi State and stayed on faculty there about four and a half years. And then a position opened back up here at UGA. And we moved here in 20, uh, 2014 and been here ever since. And now I'm an associate professor of wildlife in the Warnell School of Forestry and Natural Resources. So Spent a lot of time in a lot of different places and chasing quail and learning as much as I can about them. You know, growing up on a tobacco farm in North Carolina, it, is that that kind of farming practice? Um, did you see quail growing up, uh, or is that sort of incongruous? Yeah, there. You know, in the late '80s, early '90s, and all the way into the early 2000s, when I was working on farm was mostly quail were gone but i, I saw some mm -hmm. enough that it piqued my interest and, and most of my early memories were you know that really lit my fire about quail was watching them forage you know watching the covey from a deer stand or mm -hmm. you know riding my four-wheeler through clear cuts and, and flushing the covey and wondering you know why they were there kind of stuff and uh those encounters albeit not very frequent were just super instrumental in the reason I'm, you know, do what I do. Um, yeah, absolutely. So you're out seeing quail while you're deer hunting. Where, where did your kind of uh, interest in hunting quail um, sort of burgeon? My grandfather, uh, mainly, he, he was a bird hunter. And, and I remember his last bird dog and, and remember my uncle Buck. Uh, I had an uncle Buck. It's not John, Can <laughs> not John Candy. Uh, but did he, he eat the old 96 er <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> I just watched that movie again the other day, Uncle Buck and the Great Outdoors. Um, oh, that's right. That were two I'm yeah. mixing my John Candies, I'm, aren't they? I'm disappointed in you. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but Uncle, Uncle Buck, he raised quail for training dogs and um, he was instrumental. And then uh, the guy that I worked for on the farm, uh, Jimmy Wilkins, his father, Jesse Wilkins, was a bird hunter. And mm. He, he had kept their bird dogs until he was about 85, I think. Mm. And so I was, I was surrounded by these, these old men, um, these frankly crotchety old men that lamented the lack of birds, you know, mm. and, and they were men I respected and 
you know, I was like, well, I want to do what they wish they still could do. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so that was really what kind of completed the cycle for me was I was interested in the biology, but I was interested in the fact that these men that I looked up to so much loved these birds and loved the dogs. And so that, mm. that was all it took for me. Speaking of love of dogs, throw out your Instagram account for us real quick. My Instagram? Yeah. Oh, oh well, sure. you can, you can look it up, but, uh, and you can tell us when you find it, but when, when I, fl- I was flipping through your Instagram account oh, yeah, and yeah. lots of dogs on your yeah. feed <laughs> and it, it appears yeah. you own three different breeds. Depends on how you want to define breeds. <laughs> um, I, I have, uh, we have five total dogs. Three of them I would categorize as bird dogs and two of them are mutts. Um, <laughs> I have two red setters. Uh, mm. and, and a field bred English cocker. And we had English pointers until we had to put one down about a month ago. Okay. Uh, but she just got really old. Um, mm. So, yeah, we, we my wife is very gracious and loves dogs herself. So I try to perpetuate that by buying more dogs. So that's gentlemen. Yes. Yeah. It works out great. Those were That'll the three. Nice that I recognize the red setter, the English yeah. pointer and the, yeah. um, the cocker. Yeah. yeah. Did you find your Instagram account? I did. Yep. What, what's the, what's the handle? Martin game lab. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Folks can follow, uh, James on Instagram and see kind of what, uh, what his trap, where his travels are taking them in the, the bird dog and, and quail research world. Yep. Um, all right. So, let me, let me give a shout out to Onyx, our national sponsor. The Onyx Hunt app is the number one GPS hunting map for bird hunters. And with the most trusted and accurate map data, you'll be able to find more birds, more coveys across the country. Download the app for a risk fee, risk-free seven-day trial and use the code quail or pheasants during checkout for 20% off at onxhunt.com. Um, so y- you've given me a really interesting list, James, of some of the projects that you and your students are working on. As I transition to asking you about each of those, I'm, I want to start with, you, you know, we touched on your passion for bird hunting mm-hmm. connected to your work life researching bob white quail and as i look through your research projects there's an awful lot of hunting related connections to your research how does your passion for hunting bob white quail inform or lead you to different research projects in your work world at university of georgia i I think it's it's a extreme motivating factor because you know, without the human connection and the social aspect and the cultural importance of quail or for any wildlife species, it, it, it begs the question, why? You know, why, why do we care? And, and uh, some species we care about because they provide us food. Some we care about because they are enjoyable to look at. Some of them perform important ecosystem services or, uh, mm-hmm. or what have you. But the ecosystem services that quail provide are they provide recreation and they have cultural importance. 
And that's an ecosystem service that I think people often overlook, but it may be the most important for helping us define us as humans to separate us from our dogs, you know? Um, so it's, to me, is super important. Uh, and I couldn't imagine, you know, approaching it in any other way. Now I, I do projects that are not related to hunting, of course. Sure. And, and those can be equally as important, but it's a definitely a motivating factor. Hmm. When people, I, I've heard the term Bob White's often referred to as a keystone species. Explain what that means for a non-biologist listener. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would call them a keystone species. I, I know you said earlier on not to correct you. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, oh, that's really good. So, so, so you might can uh, edit this out I think later. He said, but... please correct me. I'm just saying. Yeah, um, just we do with umbrella, maybe. Yeah. 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 Um, indicator. Umbrella. Indicator. Umbrella surrogate species okay. uh flagship uh so explain explain what a keystone species is and then why a bobwhite wouldn't necessarily be defined that way okay so keystone species would be relative to their abundance how uh what's their impact on the overall eco ecosystem so uh, uh, a beaver let's say beavers aren't very plentiful but they manipulate the environment or they create habitat for other species. Okay. Um, so that would make them a keystone species. Uh, Bob whites don't really manipulate the environment for anything else. Um, and if frankly, if Bob whites were to go extinct, hardly any other species would notice they were gone with any large measure. Right. Hmm. Uh, hawks would still find ro rodents to eat, um, what ha have you. So, and, and they are important in the ecosystem, but there would be something that would probably fill the niche. A, fill the niche, right? Mm -hmm. But we refer to them as flagships or umbrellas because if you manage for quail, typically you're going to manage for the benefit of other similar species. Okay. Um, other grassland or, uh, you know, pine savanna or woodland species would benefit if you manage for quail under most circumstances. So leave it to the marketing guy to mix the terminology. And it's fine. So, <laughs> but I mean, it is. It, you are a Michigan fan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, perfect. But it is, it is yeah. a good reminder of oh, so you, you mentioned an umbrella or indicator species of of an ecosystem's yeah. health you know if yes. we have if we have a good response from bob white quail then it does speak to the harmony of that um, environment's sustainability is that an accurate assessment absolutely yes yeah, you know we call it the you know the old uh metaphor the canary in the coal mine mm -hmm. you know kind of deals it's like the the bobwhites are the canary of the grasslands. You know, if, if you don't hear them calling, and if you go out there on a, a nice 80 degree June day in Georgia and you don't hear the bobwhite whistle, that probably tells you that the ecosystem is, you know, doesn't have that uh, habitat for that particular species, but also is lacking for a lot of other species as well. Okay. So that, it, that is, it makes for a nice transition into the first project you're working on. And, 
you know, the, the question is, the, the question of this project is how many birds can be sustainably shot from one area and still be a healthy ecosystem for quail, right? Which yeah, is, sure. which, which leads us into that, you know, the, the balance of habitat and predators. Yeah. And in yep. this case, hunters are part of the pr predators, which is true. Yeah, right? So tell, tell us about this project. Yeah, this project is funded by Indiana Department of Natural Resources. Uh, and Justin Hill is the PhD student working on that and his technicians. Um, got, got to give a shout out to the graduate students because they're the ones that do all the grunt work um, while I get to sit in the office. But um, yeah, the, we're in year two of that project. And, and we're trying to figure out how many can you shoot without causing long-term damage to the population. And it's a question you would think we would have a handle on in quail, considering we've been studying them for 100 years. But there hasn't been many uh, field-based studies to answer that question. And so we've uh, embarked on a four-year study where we are looking at different harvest rates and how that affects the population. Hmm. Yeah. So ultimately, are you trying to get to like what the accurate a bag limit should be in a state based on annual harvest and quality of habitat? Uh, maybe the bag limit, but probably more so the season length. And mm. for public land, how many people you can allow on it without uh, killing too many birds. The bag limit doesn't affect overall harvest that much for quail hunters because we typically only kill one to two when we go out on a hunt. Hmm. So if, if you, you can't, it's hard to re reduce a bag limit below two or one. Um, there's just, that's not going to affect much change in the overall harvest. So the main way you manipulate harvest for quail is how many people you allow to hunt an area and how, hmm. for how long. And so, so that's the, a, the bag limit, like, no, this, that's a, that's really interesting because yeah. So the bag limit is more just societal expectations. Like, yeah, well, right. I can get to 10 in a day. <laughs> yeah. You're never yeah. going to get to 10 in a day. Not for, not for quail. Typically, um, on, on public land throughout most of the Southeast, we did a little bit of a review a couple of years ago. And the average quail hunter, uh, these numbers are getting a little bit dated, but kills about one to two quail per day mm. on public land hunting. So, uh, you know, that the bag limit in most states is six per person or sometimes 12. And so the bag limit is not what's keeping people from shooting more birds. It's it's the density of the quail and just the fact that, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of walking. And if, if people shoot like I did last week, their bag limit is definitely uh, not relevant. That's, um, that's why we count covey flushes instead of bag <laughs> yeah, limit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's all about the encounter rate. But um, I think don't don't you think too though that our culture has changed uh, even maybe from from my dad's age he's seventy one you know back then man it was if you didn't get the limit you were kind of not doing oh, yeah. it right but now people go out and get the opportunity to get a couple wild flushes and get a few birds and they're they're ecstatic and so that's yeah not, that's helped uh, I don't yeah know yeah which came first in that situation but um, at least people are okay with that I feel like yeah absolutely. Yeah, the the expectations are uh, different yeah. than the, than they were, you know, in the '60s, for for example. Uh, and, and plus, we've removed probably one of the main motivating factors is we we all have plenty to eat, and mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, 
subsistence is not our motivating factor when we're out there shooting quail. Sure. Right yeah. I, I, yeah I, I keeping the dogs happy. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause that was meat hunting then. I mean, no doubt it was hunting yeah. for the pot. And now that is, that is deer hunting, you know, is, is largely replaced that uh, culturally for sure. Um, so yeah. I hadn't really thought about that. So I, I want to just press on the season length with a, another question. And I'm, Forgive me, I'm thinking about this from a pheasant country sure. parallel, right? And yeah. we talk about as the season progresses, pheasant hunting, um, it really doesn't hurt the population because you're harvesting roosters, right? You're mm-hmm. not taking hens out. But as it gets farther and farther into the winter, you're pushing hens around out of or yep. wintering areas, and it can stress them out and lead yep. to l- less prolific reproduction in the spring because they're not coming into nesting season as um, robust health as normal, right? Yep. If the season is is lengthy. Yep. Is that a similar parallel when you're thinking about quail, like the longer the season goes towards nesting season, that you're actually damaging hens' ability to bounce back and go into nesting season? Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny you bring that up. And that one wasn't even canned. We didn't even have it on, that one on the list. But we, we have a project we finished last year um, or year before last, Emily Prosser's thesis, where we looked at that hmm. at, down in South Florida, where the breeding season, uh, the hunting season in Florida go, goes all the way to the uh, typically like the first Saturday in March. Well, quail start breeding in the end of February in central and South Florida. Hmm. So we're, we're actually quail hunting when birds are pairing off in central and South Florida. And uh, this is a study done through tall timbers and escape ranch and it's funded by the Ingram family. Um, and we did see some effects and, and, and suggested that hunting birds, not shooting them, but just hunting them had carryover impacts to those hens at the start of the nesting season. Hmm. Now, North Florida and further north probably doesn't have that same issue, at least less of an issue, because there's a bigger gap between hunting season and when breeding season starts. So I don't want everybody to, you know, make a huge conclusion just sure. from a from a very specific case in South Florida. But um, do I think that could be something that could contribute to um quail populations or or come into play possibly um i I do think it would be minimal compared to south florida again because most of the quail range from the end of february to the start of breeding season is quite a bit of time and so i think that if there is any kind of stress factor it would probably be washed out quote unquote by the time hens start to to go to nest okay That'd be my prediction, but I don't have any data to support that. That would be my expectation, Um, but it's a good question. Okay. Well, let's move to the second project that you're working on. And it, you know, we can talk about breeding length and season length and um, hunting pressure and different, you know, the weather of South Florida versus the weather of the Great Plains, right? And we can, yeah. all of those variables are sort of secondary and tertiary sure. to the big one. 
And the big one is habitat, right? And habitat is what influences bob white populations across the range. And the money ball question that you're working on is how much habitat is enough? So tell me about this project and like, what's the scale of this project? What you're trying to figure out here? Yeah, um, we're trying to answer it. I think it is one of the most critical questions is is how much is enough and and does it matter where you put it? Um, So if we think back, you know, to the the golden age of quail hunting, the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, post-World War II, um, but, you know, pre-1980s, you know, that 30-year period of time when folks remember a lot of quail, um, there may have been more before that, but that's, that's the time period everybody thinks about. Probably half or more of the rural landscape was habitat for quail in some way or another. Um, hmm. and so we just kind of took that for granted, but now we have less than five or 10% of the land in quail habitat. If you were just randomly pick anywhere in any state you probably would end up in a spot that doesn't have any habitat. Mm -hmm. And so as we try to restore populations and we have a finite amount of money, right? Mm -hmm. We can't restore everything. Uh, So then the question is, well, how much is it going to take? How much habitat is it going to take to elicit a population response? And then how much is it going to take to the point where we can start hunting them again in some areas? And so what we've been doing is, using field data that we've collected over the years and coalescing literature and building models to say, okay, if these models are true and what we know and what we think we know about quail, again, we've been studying them since Stoddard in the thirties and twenties. This is how quail should react in these landscapes. And we play simulation games right now on computers and and, and it kind of would look like a video game to the average person. Um, and we say, okay, if we put 30 cubbies in this landscape and we run that simulation out for 50 years, programmed it, so, you know, based on quail biology or what we think we know, are they mm-hmm. going to persist or not? What we're finding is it takes a lot more than I think than most people would, would probably want to believe, mm. um, you know, 20 to 30% of a 6,000 acre area is going to, need to be in some type of quail habitat. It doesn't have to be, you know, the pristine quail property, but it needs to be in something that they can use for at least a short amount of time. That's a major statement. You think about 6,000 acres and 20 to 30%. Yeah. And, and, and so I know the kickback I'm going to get by saying that it's like, well, James, that doesn't exist anywhere, Harley. Mm -hmm. And my response is, I know, look at the breeding bird survey data and, and what's happening to quail. Sure. It's, it's declining at about 3.8% thereabouts a year. So we don't have any, many landscapes like that. And quail are declining in almost any BBS route that you look at the places where we have a lot of quail are almost a hundred percent quail habitat. So I have, I don't see any data on the landscape that would, could, you know, be used against what my statement just said. Hmm. I I hope I'm wrong. I hope we can get away with fewer 
uh, or less percentage of the landscape. But right now, that's what our models are telling us. And our plan is to, you know, validate that with some more field data. But right now, that's what the models are telling us. Well, and I think both of those numbers are huge because you, you said 20 to 30 and 6,000 acres. And I think people will get hung up on that because at one time we, we talked in the, in the, you know, quail space was, you got to have 5,000 acres to be successful. You're, you're not necessarily saying that you're saying, no. let's look, that's the scale we need to be looking at and then right. assess what percentage that is on that landscape. And so that's why areas that are either heavy, heavy agriculture or conversely heavily forested with no openings or no yeah. disturbance, uh, yeah. you know, neither one of those are good for quail. And if you look across the landscape, we kind of run across those two situations time and time again. Yeah. And, and I want to yeah. be clear. I'm not saying anyone has to own 6,000 acres to have quail. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I'm just saying that if you and your close 100 neighbors, y'all own 6,000 acres together, that somewhere on that 6,000 acres needs to be about 1,500 acres of habitat for quail. Mm -hmm. You might only mm -hmm. own 30 acres of it, but if they those birds in that population have access to that amount of habitat in that 6,000 acres, then I think the populations will persist for the next 50 or 100 years. Yeah, so, and, you know, go ahead, sorry. Jess. I was just going to jump in and say, you know, that's why we're pushing some of these programs so hard is to get some of that connectivity and like James said, get the neighbors working together. And, you know, yeah, we're apologizing for these numbers he's, he's thrown out, but it's the reality um, most likely of what's happening on the ground. And we need to, you know, stop um, sugarcoating it and look at what it's really going to take to keep these birds on the landscape. And, you know, the work that James is doing, um, you know, looking at outcomes and stuff is going to be really important, I think, to tell the story and convince people, you know, to keep fighting and do these small changes across the landscape because we're not asking them to convert everything into quail habitat, although that would be wonderful. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. you know, some of these other just connectivity, getting it on the landscape, like you said. And I think maybe the reason that we have a little bit of an apologetic tone is maybe we've stood <laughs> in a whole lot of trade shows before and been and been beat about the head with uh, a lot of different ideas on on why the population has declined. And, and it's really tough because people do tend to want to look for the simplest solution to things. And unfortunately, quail quail population management or quail habitat management is not a simple process. It's not just like you said. 25% of 6,000 acres. Okay. So let's put 1500 acres right in the middle and we got quail over 6,000 acres. No, it wouldn't happen that way. It has to be at a scale that, that coveys are going to use uh, across that whole landscape, you know, whether it depends on your sporting, uh, um, you know, analogy you want to use, whether it's a, a baseball field or a football field, but it's that level all the way across the landscape to achieve that level of success. And, and that's why I think sometimes even organizationally, we we maybe miss our we have the language barrier when it comes to pheasant habitat and, mm -hmm. and quail habitat, because those those are so, so different. Yeah, right. Um, I, I think there, there are three really important points you make there. One is, you know, we can draw parallels between some things with pheasants mm -hmm. and quail, but then there are some things we can't. Right. And yes. just differentiating yeah. those two. 
one thing I, I find heartening is we are talking about the realities of, hey, let's look at a 6,000 acre landscape and approach mm-hmm. it at 20 to 30%. Let's be real about it. Not, mm-hmm. not be like, well, let's fight for the margins. You know, like, no, like if we as a society believe quail are cool, and we made that statement in the last podcast, right? <laughs> like we need them. They're, they yeah. speak to yep. a healthy environment, water quality, yep. wildlife populations, open space for people, carbon sequestration, clean air. And quail are, you know, okay, they're not, in, they're not a keystone species, but they do indicate, <laughs> yeah. right? Right there. They're, they're very important that, that, that um, everything is healthy around us. So, you know what? 20% is, uh, 30% is okay. And, and it, I also find it heartening that it really does mesh with our organization's philosophical approach to conservation through a mosaic landscape. Oh, yeah. Right. Where, you know, and what I mean by that mosaic is, you know, it's habitat in harmony with forestry, in harmony with agriculture. Like as a society in 2020, we're smart enough to find a way for it all to be on the ground. Right. Whether that's that's pollinator habitat, nesting habitat, riparian buffers, um, crops. You know, there is a place for a mosaic to uh, approach and have quail enough for a healthy environment. So I I went on a little diatribe there. What do you say to that, James? I I agree. Uh, Yeah, I don't want folks to to listen to this and say, well, that egghead James Martin at UGA says we're not going to have quail unless we take 30 percent of our land and just quit farming it and we lock it in a lockbox and we never you know do anything with it that's not what i'm saying i'm, I'm just saying that 30 percent of it needs to be in habitat and the habitat c- takes in many form uh, a soybean field can be habitat parts of the year if some uh you know stubble is left in, on the edge of the field or um in parts of the year they take their brews to there as long as there's a hedgerow next to it um so it's having those complementary pieces throughout the landscape across that 6,000 acres, as you say, in a mosaic, some people might call that multifunctional landscape, whatever, you know, whatever nomenclature we want to use. So I'm saying continue to manage it, but just integrate quail habitat principles across the entire 6,000 acres. And if you do that, most likely it will add up to 30% of the area that is habitat. And I think that's what we got to get back to uh, in these landscapes that are production oriented. I think about the parallels to how so many parts of the country now where they do talk to people, talk to their neighbors and they manage specifically for big bucks, mm-hmm. right? Like don't shoot that two-year-old, right? Yeah, Let it, yeah. I don't care if you shoot it three years from now, but don't shoot it this year. And right. that, that same sort of philosophy in an upland bird culture uh, benefits the whole, not just one landowner, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's instead of in quail, it's not about shooting the individual animal. It's like, don't mow down that hedgerow because the hedgerow is going to help the, the, the covey that's going to go on yeah. Sally Joe's property, you know, quarter mile down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
so yeah, we all have kind of these ripple effects mm -hmm. uh, on our properties, especially when we're dealing with smaller landowners. Right on. Another, so that it, it leads to the next project pretty, pretty naturally that you're working on. And the question is how many Bob whites are out there? So as you try <laughs> to answer the question, how much habitat is necessary? You need to establish a baseline, right? How many sure. birds are out there and what we're trying to aspire to through land management. Yep. You come to a determination for how many birds are out there. <laughs> oh, I tell you what, quail folks, we've loved to figure out ways to count quail. Um, and we've been working on acoustic recording devices for counting quail. And we're getting pretty close to, to being able to use that technology to sit it out in a, a field or a forest, record data for a couple of days, bring it back to a computer, run it through a program, and it spits out an estimate. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we've been working on. I have uh, several postdocs working on that and, and grad students over the last couple of years and um, several agencies funded that work. And I, I, I think we're going to get to the point where it could be scalable. And, and that's one of the issues we run into with quail is it's pretty easy, relatively easy to get an estimate on a couple hundred acres, how many quail there are. But when we want to start monitoring things at 6,000 acre scales, then we run into how do we have enough people in our army to go out there and monitor those birds? Hmm. And so these ARUs hopefully fill that niche. Hmm. Um, you know, counting quail on, at the single property scale, we do that through trapping or covey call counts. And again, all those techniques work well, but it's hard to scale them. Right, right. Yeah. So uh, you're looking, are you, I know a lot of research is sometimes being funded by a donor, sometimes mm -hmm. being funded by a state agency. And yep. this project, is it being funded by a state agency trying to wrap their arms around how many birds are in a given state? Yeah, Georgia DNR. Um, when I first moved here in 2014, the very first meeting I had with uh, Reggie Thaxon was the quail coordinator at the time. And then Tina Johansson was um, program manager, kind of head of the or kind of the liaison for research between the university and DNR. And they were like, we want to get a better handle on how many birds we have on these WMAs. Hmm. What, do, what do you think about using ARUs? And, and I'm a Luddite by, you know, that's just how I am. I'm almost anti-technology in a lot of ways. And so my initial reaction was, I don't know about that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I embraced it slowly and now I'm glad I did because I do see a lot of, um, usefulness in the future, but Georgia DNR huh. funded that initial effort effort for sure. And that's been, you know, hugely important for our success. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, fourth, your fourth project, and I'll admit is probably my favorite one. <laughs> and that's, huh. um, cause it, I've, I've asked myself this, um, a myriad times, right? Why did my dog point there and lock up rock solid and then there's nothing there? So you're studying well, the behavior of quail in response to hunting and what produces some of these non-productive points. Well, the answer to your question is you have a short hair, don't you? <laughs> oh, I could smell oh, it coming, man. I, I could too. Uh, I, <laughs> Be well, you got to answer the question, do you? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, all right. I've got multiple short hairs. So <laughs> okay, there. well played. <laughs> no. 
my first bird doll is short hair, so I can't. <laughs> and you don't um, have a single one in your pack anymore, do you? I don't. I don't. <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 I hunt with some very good ones. I'm just teasing. Um, yeah, you know, um, Clay Sisson did a lot of this work 20, 30 years ago. And then Darren Terheen and I that uh, was been at Tall Timbers or was at Tall Timbers for a long time, worked on a lot of this for last 10 years. And we continue to kind of work on this, um, doing a project down at a skate ranch in central Florida on this with Jeff Bean and his, his group. And yeah, I mean, we're, it's kind of one of those things. It's, it's a lot of gee whiz hmm. stuff, you know, like, you know, what happens to, to the, is there a covey there? What do they do? Um, uh, those types of things. And a lot of times unproductive points are, there was actually a bird there, mm. you know. Um, I knew and, it! <laughs> you know, um, and, and I would just tell hunters that just go a little farther. Huh. That, that That's like the biggest piece of advice I can give you is like you, you if your bird, your dog wants, you know, the adage always trust your bird dog mm-hmm. is 100% true. Uh, if, if your dog showed that it was gamey or birdie and it locks up, that probably meant that there was a bird there recently and you should follow that wind in that direction and flush that way with your gun ready mm. and go an extra 50 yards that you might not have mm. gone. Uh, wow. And with, with pheasant hunters, that's probably just par for the course, right? That's yes. just, you know, you can tell a typical quail hunter that never hunts pheasants versus somebody that hunts both is a completely different way they approach the point. Oh, yeah. But, you know, most quail hunters, if the birds don't get up right in front of the dog, they just like, uh, you know, you know, false point is what pe- some people would call it. And really, that's a misnomer. You shouldn't say that. That's why the language has changed. It's called an unproductive. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, just go a little bit further because there's a good chance the birds were there or still there and they're just holding tight. I mean, we've had a lot of cases where the birds are literally never moved and they're within 10 square feet of where you're standing and if the if the wind's blowing or the birds have been flushed in the past they know uh i don't know how they know but they know that if you're shooting something you're not likely going to shoot them on the ground and see them on the ground and Hmm. there's a reason why they're colored the way they are uh so just be patient and but continue that that walk or that flush ahead of the dog and and i think you'll be a little bit more successful Hmm. that's super fast that's a that's a gem of a nugget for us yeah is there anything else that comes to mind as you're thinking about you know you got your scientist hat on (laughs) right but then you when you're out in the field you're like oh i learned about that when we did that research project back like anything else from a science perspective that you could tip off hunters about to think differently when they're out Come in the off field. all the good stuff. Yeah. Nobody give nobody us the gravy. Us all right. So here's a few. So <laughs> uh, you learn this from trapping birds, right? So if if this if it's late in the like well, late for us in the hunting season, February, it gets hot. You know, we have to deal with 60, 70 degree weather in February in Georgia. And so in the middle of the day, the birds are gonna be on the shady side of woody cover. They're not mm. gonna be on the sunny side of it. So 
hunt the shady sides, not the sunny sides. Because if you're trapping birds, that's where you want to set your traps uh, to put out radios for a research project. Hmm. So I hunt shade when I when I'm hunting quail in in if it's a warm day in South Georgia. Um, and as late season goes on, if you're on a public land area that's been hunted more, birds are going to be further away from the traditional food sources. So the more times birds are encountered, the more they change their foraging behavior. So for every time a covey's encountered, like has a direct interaction with a dog and a hunter gets shot at, they learn something. And, and we've seen that after four encounters, they basically give up on a food source. Hmm. So, and, and I'm using that give up term, you know, kind of loosely, but they, they kind of avoid it more so than they would earlier in the year. So hunt in places that you would maybe, you thought, you know, that if, if they were using it early in the year and they've been harassed in that food source, like say it's a food plot or a grain sorghum patch mm-hmm. or whatever, and they're constantly being hit in that grain sorghum patch, I would not continue to hunt that grain sorghum patch. Um, I, I would go to find other food or just find areas that are just not hunted mm-hmm. um, for on public land. Now, th- these issues don't so much happen on private land that don't get as much um, pressure, but on public land, I, I would definitely try those tactics. Hmm. So when you are hunting public land, <clears throat> I'm assuming the bigger the area and the deeper, farther you walk away from roads in, you know, where the natural yep. pressure would occur, that's going to put you into the, the sweet spots, right? Yeah. And it, and they start using habitat types that you wouldn't expect them to use, hmm. like river cane thickets where we live and even hardwood bottoms and drains. Um, you know, it's similar, I guess, to the maybe cattail usage for pheasants mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Uh, you know, they just start in, in places that you would not typically think of as quail habitat because they're trying to avoid you. <laughs> Interesting. Yep. yep. So I threw this opportunity out for Mark McConnell. Yeah. Um, this is your GoFundMe opportunity. So oh. you you probably have a whole list of research ideas that you would, you know, you just dream of getting a funder, whether it's a state agency or a private donor, to pay for research, but you just haven't been able to get somebody to bite. And Mark, <laughs> I'll be, you know, you know, all transparency, Mark didn't want to share his list. <laughs> so, well, that, that's because he was my PhD student and I trained him well. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I'll throw the same, the same uh, opera, uh, opera out to you. Is there an idea that you just uh, you think is really, really interesting, but you just haven't been able to get uh, somebody, somebody to fund it? Oh, I'm at the age I don't care if people steal steal my ideas. Uh, so uh, you know, Mark's young; he's still trying to develop a career. So he's he's taking a smart approach. Um, I I guess I won't mention anything specifically per se, but we need more demographic data on working landscapes. So what I mean by that is we we've studied quail a lot. 
on private, uh, very well managed properties. And that, that data has been so valuable to quail science for a hundred years. Um, and I don't, I, I shudder to think where we would be without it. Mm. Uh, the tall timbers, the, the Albany quail projects, the, the escape ranches of the world are super important. Um, the rolling plains, you know, and, and the pack saddle WMAs, I, I could keep listing them. Um, but, you know, we don't have a lot of telemetry data where we put radio tag birds on, you know, John Smith's farm, Sally Q's pasture, uh, all, you know, in that mosaic that you're talking about. Sure. It's not, se- it's not sexy. So I'm not giving you like this, you know, NASA answer. Uh, but we need to know how well that the data that we have on these other well-managed properties that are strictly quail focused, does that really, is that really what quail do on, uh, other properties? Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise our assumptions are all wrong uh, about how we should be managing landscapes. Um, so that's, that would be my wish. The problem is getting people to fund that because it's not just one person you need to get money from or, or whatever. It's it's a conglomerate of people, and it, it takes a, a huge societal demand for that. Um, these other projects have been funded mainly by single benefactors mm. or single a- agencies. That's a really but, interesting but, perspective. Go, I'm sorry, Andy, go ahead. So I, I would say, though, too, like with with other species, that's a common occurrence where we're, we're funding research that is on a, you know, a, a working landscape and on, you know, I think of ducks or my former grad research on bears. It was it was on multiple landowners and there was no uh, no individual funding coming from landowners. Mm-hmm. But but we don't typically do that uh, for for quail, particularly. Maybe we mm-hmm. even do it quite often for other upland birds, but not quail. It, you're. So the we you're talking about is society, not quail yes, forever. And, sure. and it, your head is in the exact same place that I was because I was thinking about, you know, the tall timbers of the world. There isn't a parallel tall timbers in pheasant country or in sage grouse country. You know, mm-hmm. that quail does have the benefit of having some of these entities that pa- care so passionately and have some funding. Mm-hmm. But many of the other species you know, the, the research is on a landscape level approach as opposed to kind of a specific geographic mm-hmm. target. It's yeah. an interesting dichotomy there. Yep. Um, tall Timbers, just for folks that, you know, maybe have heard us mention Tall Timbers, but don't really know it. It is, it, Tall Timbers is something we should spend just a minute talking about who they are, what they do, and how they fit into what you do, James, because it's a pretty critical piece of um, the relationship for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't work for Tall Timbers, so I, you know anything I say is not official stance of Tall Timbers, but uh, they are a nonprofit, uh, officially started in, I think, 1958, I believe, is their, their first year. But really, they got their start in the 30s with Stoddard's quail work, and, and then they kind of codified that in the fifties as a nonprofit research institution. And now they're much more than that. Their research outreach, um, really focused on co-production of science and, and management for quail and pine savanna species, uh, 
advocates for for prescribed fire, mm-hmm. um, those sorts of things, and overall environmental stewardship. Absolutely. Yeah, they, and they're they're very very good partners at Quail Forever. I'll point listeners if you haven't listened to the episode from a few years back with Dr. Bill Bill Palmer. Um, one of my absolute favorite episodes. He just super fascinating and had the opportunity to record with him in person um, on a quail hunting trip. So there's a little, little hunting, a little habitat. It was, it was a good episode. Yeah. Um, All right. As we, as we wind down and give everybody an opportunity to kind of give us their, their closing thoughts. First thing, James, I want to thank you for your time and sharing your expertise. More importantly, Thanks for being a collaborator with all of our biologist team. I know you work closely with Jess and and you've done summits with us. You've been a super partner with our organization. Um, if folks want to drop you an email with an idea to add to your, your research list or pick your brain, um, how would people get in touch with you at University of Georgia? Yeah, my email is j. M-A-R-T-22 at uga.edu. Great. Great. And And if they wanted to give you a Go Wolverines message, would that that automatically get filed in the spam folder? Yeah, we have very, very strong spam. (laughs) Well, we're going to give you the closing thought, the final thought. We'll start with uh, Andy's going to bat lead off for us on the – around uh, the horn closing thoughts what do you think andy well i uh, enjoy the partnership james uh, you and i talk pretty often and and always enjoy that um james and i met gosh trying to think when this would have been james about oh six or seven i spent a few days in a travel trailer where he was doing you were doing your phd research i think i was yep yeah down in south florida and i was coming down to start a couple quail chapters and attend a a banquet down there with hopes of killing a, an Osceola on public <laughs> land, which did not happen. But um, he he had, uh, I believe you had a cocker back then. That was that was years ago. June. And, uh, yep. Yep. First cocker that I was ever around, really, uh, for hunting purposes. And so, uh, but just remember that man, and that was kind of that's been a, been a while, but uh, kept that relationship alive, and always kind of enjoy. Uh, hearing hearing the things that you're working on and thinking about and we i would say as we go along we're purposefully more aligned of course we've we've had three different quail professors on in the last month or two um, but we're the mission of quail forever is of course habitat and we're the habitat organization but we really i think are doing a, a a better job year after year on on aligning with the science that's out there and so it's um it's hopeful. It's, it's exciting. Um, you know, those numbers that you threw out they're they're, they're real, they're important for us to acknowledge. And I think the important for the sportsmen out there to acknowledge, because until, until we fully acknowledge the importance of habitat and doing it right. Um, we let some of those other things get in the way, I think at times of, Mm -hmm. of getting out and doing the work. And so just, just proud of the, proud of the partnership and I'm proud to be kind of a, a partner with you. Yeah. Thanks. Appreciate it, man. I think that's a really important point. And I'm glad you circled back to that acre number. You know, there's, you know, it's, it's sort of nerf world that, you know, maybe we lived in, in the past wishes and candy canes talking about, Oh, you could have 5% of the landscape and habitat and, you know, 
birds owner spawns like well they maybe will in the first couple of years but then things are going to fall off the table I mean, if we want to have quail for the long term, sustainable wild populations, let's get real about it. Let's yep. attack attack it with a true mosaic at a landscape level approach. Yeah, and and I'm absolutely um, kind of segue into Jess's work, but I think that's the reason we're doing things in the locations that we are. That's why we're we're focusing efforts with chapters. We're we're placing, you know biologists and employees on the landscape in that manner where it's we're not going to make that 25 percent across the whole u.s in the quail range no. but but within those those important you know key areas that have good good populations to work on we're absolutely going to have a presence there so. go ahead jess that was like the baton getting passed to you all <laughs> right i know it it's like i teed him up now it's just i think you know, we talked about it before. It's exciting um, times, some of the stuff that's going on and um, looking at these questions is so important, um, you know, just to help us in, inform us on how we're planning um, habitat on the ground and how we train our biologists. You know, James is integral in helping train our biologists. Uh, we had some great stuff going pre-COVID um, with Bob White Boot Camp. And, um, you know, I can't say enough good words about how that impacted um, all of our biologists, new and veteran, um, you know, to have that knowledge there. And I think we're working as a really great team right now to make sure that um, good habitats get put on the ground. And I hope we're not wasting time and resources and, you know, support of this research is really critical um, to make sure that you know, we're doing what we need to be doing and we know what our dogs are doing most importantly. Right. <laughs> right um, absolutely. So maybe he can get some funding in for those important questions. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's a great thing. There's fun stuff and hopefully in a couple of years we'll circle back on this and have some in improved reports. Right. Yep. All right. Dr. James Martin, uh, thank you very much. And uh, we'll give you the uh, the final word. Final word. Well, uh, to build off what um, Jess was just saying is, you know, I, I, I don't know if, how many people listen to this podcast or George Jones fans, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he had that song, Who's Gonna Fill Their Shoes, um, talking about, you know, country music mm -hmm. or whatever. And, and I think about that some with quail management, too, uh, of training the next generation of quail biologists. And then quainting, training the next generation of quail hunters and people that are going to be advocates for quail. And that's something we've tried to work on. And uh, uh, the Rollins family through Tall Timbers um, have started to develop some, some fellowships and scholarships. We're going to be paying folks to come to UGA, hopefully, and work on a master's degree to um, be private lands biologists, not to go into research, but to to manage properties and, and the Ingram family is going to support that as well. And, and I think that's going to be important. We take it for granted that there'll be somebody to replace me or Andy or Jess. And, and I think we, if the trend continues, there, there won't be, uh, and there'll be fewer folks that have that passion and we have to be strategic about replacing us and hopefully with better people. Uh, I want the next generation, mm -hmm. I hope Mark's better than I am. Um, and I hope his students is, is better than Mark. And 
uh, that's going to take good, you know, benefactors like the ones I mentioned to, to make that happen. So appreciate their support. And so uh, my other last word is we just got to continue to um, interrogate all information about quail. There's a lot of misinformation out there about uh, causes of quail decline. We've all answered them to her, uh, you know, blue in the face about it's not fire ants across the range. It's not uh, turkeys eating them. Uh, it's likely not eye worms, especially in Georgia. Uh, you know, it's not these, these kind of zombies of the night. Um, and we've just got to stay steadfast and, and mm. continue to provide good information for the people that want to listen. And, and that's where I think that's my kind of uh, important part in all this this <laughs> this drama <laughs> right, right so i lied i'm gonna ask you one more question uh, go for it and it's it, it stems from and i'm not trying to set you up um here it stems from mark's comment during our podcast with mark mcconnell he said yeah you know there's more enthusiasm there's more energy around bob white quail than any other time in my lifetime it's cool to care about quail again right he was he was he was really optimistic glass half full sort of perspective uh, and again i'm not trying to lead you to that water but how, how do you react to that do you feel a similar trend are you more are you are you jaded where where do you fall in that spectrum <laughs> depends on the day mm. uh, <laughs> i I'll be honest. I have my days. I am jaded. Uh, I, I get down. I get frustrated uh, by lack of progress in, in some arenas. Um, you know, and I think that comes from, you know, having hunts that just don't go as well as you expect, you know. Mm. Um, and so then it questions, am I doing the right research? You know, if if is, is the lack of information the reason why I didn't have a good as hunt today or is it just you know, random chance, or whatever. So I have those days too. And then they're usually followed up with, you know what, James, get your head out of your butt and get a short uh, hair. I had to swing. It was right uh, there. You paused. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I'll give you that one. Touché, sir. Um, but, uh, and then I, then I, I think, you know, so, you know what, on, on some of these properties, there's more quail than there ever has been. Um, mm. And so I, I get hope. And we, I think we quail folks are optimistic people and we're, we're romantic people. Mm. Uh, I think we, we want to see the glass half full. We want to see it completely full. Mm -hmm. mm. And um, we talk about quail survival and not quail, quail mortality. Even though 80% of them die, we still call it quail survival. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're just trying to be optimists. And so I would say five out of seven, I'm optimist and hopeful. And then two out of seven, I, I'll get down uh, if I'm being completely honest. But um, yeah, we've, we've, we've got to make it where we can figure out how to grow quail on typical production landscapes. Mm. Uh, that's, that's the nut to crack. Right on. Absolutely. I appreciate the reality check and appreciate you, the collaboration. As I introduced Dr. Mark McConnell, when we, when we talked, it was like, 
you know, we're a habitat organization. We're not a research organization. That's where folks like Dwayne Elmore, you, James Martin, come come into play for us. Because, you know, our mission isn't to do what you do, but we can't do what we do unless we we collaborate with you to help us determine, to Andy's point, you know, here's the quail focal areas. Here's where chapters should be based. And here's how we can put our resources to work on the ground to create nesting cover, to create brood yeah. cover, to plant shrubby um, habitat, to, to really bring, um, bring that mission to the ground in the best yep. possible way. So yep. um, thank you for your time on this episode, but largely thanks for the partnership. All right, you're welcome. And thank y'all too. It, it works both ways. Um, we need people to use our information and, and, and you all, you're those people. So that's, that's how it should work. Right on, right on. Well, as you um, start to transition to finding the answers on some of these projects and working on yep. new ones, please do reach out. I know um, our listeners love hearing about what's being worked on at, at different universities as it relates to their favorite game birds and their passions and um, in, in that regard, I'll, I'll remind listeners, just like James said, uh, non-productive points always follow the dog, especially yeah. if it's a short air, because uh, something eventually, something yeah. will, will rise. So thanks, yeah. folks, for listening. Um, Jess McGuire, Andy Edwards, James Martin, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.